Hello, and welcome to Fraud Eat Strategy, an FTI consulting podcast series in which we explore the myriad ways that fraud, corruption, and misconduct can derail strategy and cause havoc. I'm Scott Moritz, a Senior Managing Director in FTI's Risk and Investigation Practice, where I assist clients in their outside counsel in managing their response to event-driven white-collar crime, misconduct, and bribery incidents. In the wake of the financial crisis of 2008, Dodd-Frank Act, Dodd-Frank, was signed into federal law on July 21, 2010. At the time, the recession was widely considered to be the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression. It certainly seemed like a 100-year storm. As it turns out, it was only a 12-year storm. The passage of Dodd-Frank represented a major overhaul of U.S. financial regulations. Among the Act's most notable achievements were the creation of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission Office of the Whistleblower and the SEC Whistleblower Program. In its short 10-year history, the SEC Whistleblower Reward Program has been extraordinarily successful in enabling the SEC to root out securities fraud and protect investors. Since the inception of the SEC Whistleblower Program, the SEC has paid more than $900 million in awards to whistleblowers resulting in more than $3.5 billion in financial remedies. According to the SEC Whistleblower Program's 2020 annual report, the SEC is tracking over 1,100 matters in which a whistleblower's tip has caused a matter under inquiry or investigation to open. So joining me today is someone whose name has become synonymous with the Office of the Whistleblower, its former chief, Jane Norberg. Jane recently left the SEC and became a partner with law firm Arnold and Porter K. Scholler. Jane was only the second person to serve as chief of the Office of the Whistleblower. And while at the SEC, she helped build and develop the SEC's whistleblower program since near its inception. Her practice currently is focused on advising clients on all facets of whistleblower matters. This includes helping companies navigate the complexities related to whistleblower reports and issues of all kinds, counseling companies to proactively assess and mitigate risk, conferring with respect to internal and external investigations, advising on best practices related to retaliation and impeding reporting to regulators, assisting the company in its response and defense to specific whistleblower allegations, and providing crisis management to mitigate reputational risk. She joined the SEC in 2012 as Deputy Chief of the Office and was appointed to Chief in 2016. Under Jane's leadership, Jane managed an expansion of the office's staff and oversaw a record-breaking growth in the number of whistleblower tips received and awards issued to whistleblowers under the program. Jane has extensive experience and knowledge regarding whistleblower retaliation and agreements that impede reporting in violation of Exchange Act Rule 21F17, having directly advised on all whistleblower protection cases brought by the SEC during her tenure. Jane has had a substantial advisory role relating to the amendments to the SEC's whistleblower rules and has conferred with and advised other domestic and international regulators related to the development of new whistleblower programs. Prior to joining the SEC, Jane was in private practice where she focused on executive compensation and employee benefits, and she previously served as a special agent in the United States Secret Service. So welcome, Jane, and thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Scott. Happy to be here. So the label whistleblower has carried with it a certain stigma, such that some organizations avoid using the term in favor of maybe less inflammatory terms, such as relator or reporter. I'm of the belief that the establishment of the office of the whistleblower itself has kind of legitimized and took away some of that stigma associated with the term. Do you agree? 
yes, I actually do believe the SEC's whistleblower program chipped away a bit at that stigma. I think the SEC has done a really good job of promoting the program and focusing on the impact whistleblower tips have had on its enforcement efforts. Every time a whistleblower is paid, you'll see a press release touting the dollar amount of the award, as well as whatever tidbits of information the SEC can give about the matter without sacrificing whistleblower confidentiality. The SEC's whistleblower program is known not only nationally, but internationally as well. And I think the SEC has done a great job of saying the Office of the Whistleblower is open for business and whistleblowers are welcome here. I actually think it's been an incredibly effective campaign. No, I would agree. So, you know, the program has had some incredible success in its first 10 years. But before we kind of get into the weeds on whistleblower matters, as some of our listeners may not be familiar with the SEC whistleblower program, can you give us a kind of a high level overview of what it is and, and how it works? Absolutely. The program was established under the Dodd-Frank Act to incentivize the reporting to the Commission of Information regarding possible securities laws violations. And if the information that the whistleblower provides leads to a successful enforcement action where over $1 million in monetary sanctions are ordered, then the individual may be entitled to receive between 10 and 30% of amounts collected in that matter. And in addition to the monetary awards, the whistleblower program also offers two other important components, and that's confidentiality and anti-retaliation protection. And these three components taken together make the program incredibly attractive to would-be whistleblowers. And as you mentioned, the program has had a lot of success, both in terms of awards, dollar amounts paid, as well as tips received over 10-year history. So fiscal year 2020 in particular was a record-breaking year for the Office of the Whistleblower. During that fiscal year, the program crossed over a very important milestone, 500 million in total whistleblower awards. And it's already you know, sort of shot, shot well beyond that now since whistleblowers themselves come from a diverse uh, set of backgrounds, including current and former employees of companies who might have had firsthand knowledge of unlawful conduct, outsiders who provided detailed analyses of wrongdoing, foreign nationals who have shown a light on hard to detect fraud happening abroad but that are impacting U.S. investors in the marketplace, as well as investors who lost money at the hands of fraudsters. So you were in the office of the whistleblower almost the entirety of its 12-year existence. What do you consider to be the program's most notable accomplishments? So paying out that first whistleblower award in just a little over a year from the program's inception was a big deal. We all held our breath until that first award was paid out because we knew that the success of the program was going to be based on how quickly we did or did not pay out an award. So that first award was pretty pivotal. The other thing I would say is bringing that first whistleblower retaliation case. You have to remember that the SEC being able to bring charges against the company for retaliation was brand new. It felt like employment law to some. And it was new and not necessarily comfortable space to be in for securities regulators. And I remember doing a lot of walking between my office and the litigation group to discuss the elements of that case and why it worked. And once that case was announced, it really felt like the SEC was putting a stake in the sand for retaliation protections for whistleblowers. Yeah, I mean, it just the whole concept of retaliation, you know, it almost seems like an anti-retaliation policy is the stating of the obvious, right? You know, it's wrong to attack someone who's trying to do the right thing. And yet it's a very real 
dynamic that exists within many companies. And personally, you know, having done lots of internal investigations, you know, you're in the middle of interviewing a witness and, you know, they obviously know a lot of what's going on that then sort of brings you the question, why didn't you come forward? And inevitably, they have a very good reason why they can come forward. It's like, last time I did, I got retaliated against and I got my pay cut and I, I got demoted and all of these things sort of so prevalent that I think the average person maybe realizes just how much of a dynamic that is in so many organizations that it's just a very real thing that people have to take into consideration. Yeah, it is not only from the whistleblower's perspective, but certainly the company needs to think about ways to really make it attractive for employees to report internally. And certainly having a very strong anti-retaliation policy is, should be you know, top of the list. Absolutely. So the SEC's jurisdiction is over companies listed on U.S. stock exchanges. And yet many whistleblower complaints actually originate from outside of the United States. Why do you think that is and, and what does that mean? You're right. The program has an incredible international reach. In the Office of the Whistleblower's last annual report to Congress, the count was up to tips received from 130 countries outside of the United States. I mean, 130 countries, that's incredible when you think about it. And I think that the SEC has done a very good job at promoting the awards process through the issuance of press releases, which get picked up on international news wires. And because of that, I think the prominence and awareness of the U.S. program is very high. I'm also not aware of many other countries that have whistleblower award programs that have the three main components that the U.S. program has. Therefore, I think whistleblowers may feel a little more comfortable reporting in the U.S. You know, there's so many multinational companies doing business in different countries. And because of this, it's definitely a challenge for companies to consolidate internal reporting, to consistently capture the tips, to conduct thorough internal investigations before it gets reported out to a regulator or law enforcement. And in addition, whistleblower protection laws can be very, very different in each country. For example, there's the new EU directive on whistleblowing for certain companies to consider and to come into compliance under. And the SEC and U.S. law enforcement agencies have jurisdictional hooks in certain areas for foreign companies. You know, therefore, companies with operations in, in many different countries really need to be sure that they're compliant with both U.S. and international laws. And I think that really requires a thorough look at policies, procedures, and controls in both you know, U.S. and international operations for compliance and a consistent approach. No, that's a really good point you make. So one of the 10 hallmarks of what the DOJ and the SEC describe as making up an effective compliance program is the hallmark under the heading confidential reporting and internal investigation. A company's approach to confidential reporting and internal investigations is, can really be a window into the entire compliance program. And interestingly, the Office of the Whistleblower Annual Report to Congress includes the statistic that approximately 81% of insiders who received awards in fiscal year 2020 had raised their concerns internally. Can you explain why that might be and what companies should consider doing to act upon these concerns in a timely and consistent manner? That's a really interesting stat, isn't it? It means that in the vast majority of cases where whistleblowers were paid an award, which means that they reported 
timely, credible, and accurate information. It means that in those cases, someone at their company knew about the issue either before or at the same time the report was made to the commission. Now, the stat does not mean that the whistleblower necessarily reported to an established hotline or through even like a formal reporting mechanism. So that could also encompass people who report it directly to their supervisor. In fact, I can think of many instances where whistleblowers told me that they reported to their supervisor, but the supervisor didn't handle the report in a manner that the whistleblower found to be adequate, which then prompted them to report to the SEC. And this is where I think companies could benefit from someone taking a good look at their internal reporting structure to make sure that all reports, not just those going through an internal hotline, are captured, triaged, and investigated if appropriate. And part of this includes training at the middle management level to make sure that those managers, number one, can identify an internal report when they get it. And number two, know what to do with that report so it's captured by the company and acted upon. And it sounds logical that someone should know if they receive a tip, but in fact, it could be as simple as an employee knocking on their boss's door and saying, hey, take a look at this. This doesn't seem right. And without proper training and controls in place, it can be really easy for a boss to dismiss that concern as a simple conversation when in fact it's actually a much larger issue and the employee feels disregarded and then they turn outside the company for help. And that's where I believe a breakdown occurs in reporting mechanisms in many companies. Well, you know, that's a a really important point for people to understand is that internal hotlines are one of multiple ways that the typical compliance program makes available for confidential reporting. And, you know, it's so important for there to be consistency in terms of how those things are brought to the company's attention, that they're handled in the same consistent way. So, you know, when it comes to internal investigations, many companies don't have formal policies and procedures that govern investigations. And this can lead to confusion, privilege issues, inconsistency in the approach and oversight of internal investigations, and also how institutional justice is meted out and how that might cause people inside the organization to question whether each investigative subject is being held to the same standard of care. With all of that, you know, what should companies be doing to ensure that allegations are investigated appropriately and consistently and that institutional justice is in fact blind? You make a a great point and ask a good question because it is incredibly important that companies take the time to get it right when it comes to internal investigations. Having well thought out policies and procedures that are consistently implied is critically important. Not every tip is going to lead to a large scale internal investigation, but certainly every tip should be triaged to determine what steps are appropriate. Many times it makes sense to have independent external parties make those determinations and lead those investigations to avoid any concern that special treatment is being given. One thing I just wanted to stress is that the identity of the whistleblower should not be the deciding factor on how serious to take a tip or whether or not to investigate. 
You may have heard me say this before on panels that it shouldn't matter. It's the worst performing employee in the company making the tip. The only thing that should be considered is if the tip is accurate. And the only way you know is if you have a process in place to take a look at the allegation. If the company ignores the allegation because they believe the reporter to be unreliable, it may backfire. And it certainly won't go over well with regulators or law enforcement if they end up at the company's door. So very critical to treat each and every report consistently in a timely manner and in accordance with company policy and protocols, as well as to be consistent and clear with the accountability and the outcome of the investigation. Many large global organizations have well-developed hotlines which enable whistleblowers to place phone calls or upload or email complaints confidentially. Those same hotlines, you know, they, they tend to have dedicated personnel who evaluate and respond to alerts received. But, you know, as we just were talking about, tip lines are not the only confidential reporting channel in an organization's ethics and compliance program. So, you know, ironically, maybe the, the most robust part of those confidential reporting channels is the hotline, but maybe people are more comfortable reporting through these other channels. So what are some of the things that organizations can do, concrete steps that they can take to make sure that complaints come through other reporting channels, such as the chain of command or letters to the audit committee or the C-suite or these other confidential reporting channels receive the same robust and consistently applied approach to their evaluation and investigation of those alerts that come through the tip line. Yeah, and I know we just talked a little bit about appropriate training of management to recognize and handle a tip, but that same training and principles can be applied regardless of who receives the tip in the company. And a company can have the best laid plans around formal hotlines and reporting mechanisms, but people are going to report where they want to report regardless of the formal mechanism. And as you mentioned, tips can be sent to the CEO, to the board, to a manager. They can be in writing. They could be given verbally. However, the person is comfortable and companies would really be benefited by everyone being on the same page about what a tip looks like and then what to do it if you receive it, whether it's in writing or whether it's verbally. Proper training at the company to identify a tip and clear protocols to report it to a centralized place for triage and action is really important. It gives the company a head start to identify, investigate, and correct an issue before a regulator or law enforcement reach out. And it also allows a company to determine whether to self-report. It's also critically important that the leadership in the organization set a standard of a culture of compliance. Others will follow if clear expectations are set. That last point in particular you just made is just so important because really the extent to which people feel comfortable coming forward or discomfort coming forward in many ways is just sort of byproduct of the organizational culture that exists, right? You know, do I feel comfortable? Do I trust the leadership? Do I feel like my voice is being given the same value and credence as maybe other people that are more senior or maybe more kind of important to the organization? And I think the manner in which these things come through can be very telling as to what the overall organizational culture that exists. 
So on January 1st of 2021, Congress enacted the Anti-Money Laundering Act of 2020. It's the most comprehensive set of reforms to U.S. anti-money laundering laws since the passage of the USA Patriot Act in 2001. One of the really interesting things about AMLA 2020 is that they created a whistleblower program that it's the highest form of flattery, I, I guess, because it emulates the SEC whistleblower program in, in many ways. So while this part of AMLA 2020 hasn't yet gone into effect, can we expect to see a huge uptick in AML-related whistleblower cases? I believe so. I mean, the SEC's whistleblower program has certainly proven that done right. It can be game-changing for the regulator. So the question will be, of course, what the rules look like once they're proposed and finalized, but it will likely be be impactful and something banks and firms need to start thinking about and prepare for now. AML compliance has been a huge focus of banks and regulators going back decades, and adding a whistleblower mechanism raises the stakes significantly for any financial institution from say, you know, depository institutions and broker dealers to casinos and virtual currency companies. These are not divisions of banks that have had to deal with whistleblower issues in the past. And as a result, adjusting to this new regime is not going to be simple. And, you know, these aren't just tips about AML compliance failures at banks. AML obligations apply to a number of financial institutions that are subject to the legislation. And the SEC has made it abundantly clear in the past couple of years through several enforcement actions and a recent risk alert regarding compliance issues related to suspicious activity monitoring and reporting to broker-dealers. So that risk alert that I'm talking about that the SEC put out, it detailed deficiencies that the Division of Examinations was seeing on a pretty regular basis with respect to deficiencies in robust policies, procedures, and internal controls. And it detailed that even in instances where a firm had good documented procedures in place, staff noted that there were failures to follow those procedures. So with this risk alert out there, coupled with the prior enforcement actions, I think firms are now on notice that they need to fix those issues ASAP. The other thing that's going to be interesting is if you think about just sort of the quantity of people within a publicly traded company that have maybe visibility into financial crime or issues with financial reporting, it's a very finite set where as opposed to a large financial services company, there could be hundreds of people that have line of sight to what they consider to be a violation of anti-money laundering statutes. So in terms of the potential pool of whistleblowers, arguably could be exponentially larger than the pool that the office of the SEC whistleblower is drawing from. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. So earlier, we talked about a very interesting fact that 81% of whistleblower award recipients had previously reported internally. I mean, should banks be consider redoubling their efforts to encourage bank personnel to report wrongdoing using their internal reporting mechanisms in the hopes of maybe avoiding the kind of potential exposure that an externally reported whistleblower matter might trigger? So it's good practice that risk assessments and reviews of processes and procedures should be done on a regular periodic basis. And when new legislation comes into play, such as this new AML legislation, it should definitely trigger that review to be done earlier to ensure compliance. 
For example, under this new AML legislation, the way it's written, tips reported to the employer count when reported internally for award purposes. How are banks going to handle that? This needs to be considered because it hasn't been done under other whistleblower programs that I'm aware of. And in addition to consideration of these you know, newer issues, reviewing for sufficient clear and robust reporting channels that are clearly communicated to employees. This includes not only the training for uh, the managers that we had discussed about identifying a tip, but also making sure that training and even communication to employees is happening as well. Firms should also be considering how are they promoting and advertising the reporting mechanisms to their employees. A good internal advertising campaign promoting compliance and internal reporting could make all the difference. So if employees don't know how to report or don't feel comfortable doing it, they're going to bypass those internal reports and go outside. This also goes to that tone from the top that we talked about and setting that standard that excellent compliance is expected and internal reports are welcome and rewarded. Interestingly, this has been, I think, quite challenging in this era of COVID and remote workforces. You know, the SEC reported a record year for whistleblower tips last year. I think it was over 6,900 received, which was a 31% increase from tips received the prior year. Hard to say why, but I think employees may have felt disconnected from their bosses and their coworkers, and certainly from their internal reporting structures. As things start to return to in-person work again, some of this may be alleviated, but I do think it may require dynamic work to be done to build back up and reinforce that culture of compliance. Who knows, Scott, maybe it's a chance for firms to reset and regroup and welcome employees back, whether it's in person or remotely or in some hybrid work environment with a new look and a new employee-friendly compliance campaign. One of the many variables that have yet to play out as we all return to the workforce, it uh, should be very, very interesting. So when you and I were planning this episode, we talked a little bit about retaliation and the fact that it's an all too real and common occurrence that you know, exists within organizations. So in light of that, you know, what can organizations be doing to remind employees of you know, sort of the implications of their anti-retaliation policy and the potential negative consequences of retaliation that include things like legal liability, public relations, you know, sort of disasters that can follow and damage to the organization's ethical culture? I would say training, training, and more training. <laughs> Honestly, I can't, I can't emphasize enough how important it is for a company to train its management about retaliation, what it is, how to avoid it. Retaliation can fall well short of firing someone from their job. And, you know, managers may not realize that the steps they're taking could violate the law and put the company and themselves in legal jeopardy, not to mention the public relations nightmare that type of publicity can cause. For employees, that, you know, compliance reporting friendly campaign that we talked about earlier could include supportive statements about anti-retaliation and, you know, rolling it all into one and, and make employees feel good about reporting internally and setting the strong tone from the top about zero tolerance around an anti-retaliation policy. It can have a real impact not only on managers, but give employees comfort that their internal reports are welcome and that they won't suffer any negative consequences simply because of that report. 
So sometimes it seems like organizations or, you know, the individuals that receive alerts within the context of confidential reporting might be bringing with them certain biases and reasons to maybe discredit a whistleblower by attaching labels to them, like, you know, maybe disenfranchised or that that person is a, a chronic complainer or a crusader, or, you know, even worse, maybe this person you know, is really not necessarily in touch with reality. And those may be, you know, valid observations. Those may actually be part of the person, person that they think might be reporting it, but be that as it may, what advice would you give to companies how they need to maybe separate these preconceptions or biases, these labels from the actual allegations at hand, because it's two different things. Right. And as we previously discussed, it's never a good idea to use the identity of the whistleblower to determine whether or not to investigate a tip. I would stress that you should always, always focus on the allegations and not the motive behind the report. Because if you think about it, even a very disgruntled employee may lob in a tip on the way out the door in anger, right? That's an incredibly good credible tip. And I understand human nature and inclination to just disregard a tip if you believe the source is not acting with the best motives. However, if the source turns out to have reported a violation that was not taken seriously simply because of who they were, it would be really tough to defend that to the regulators. Well, you know, in fact, you're talking about human nature. The investigators, when we're doing background investigations, when we are doing internal investigations. And, you know, part of what you're doing is trying to develop a list of witnesses that might provide valuable information. People with an axe to grind make really good witnesses. Of course, it's important to factor into consideration what what that person's motivation might be, but it doesn't negate what they're saying and or the validity of what they're saying. And I, and I think that's a, that's a common misstep that I think a lot of people take. Yeah, I agree. So whistleblower investigations really need to take the protection of the identity of the whistleblower into consideration. And while it may be prudent to re-engage with a whistleblower, if that's possible, and pose clarifying questions, efforts to identify a person, particularly a person who's taking great pains to remain anonymous, can result in enormous blowback. So how can companies sort of thread that needle and seek to engage in a dialogue with a confidential whistleblower? without it seeming like they're trying to unmask or retaliate against them or discredit them in some way? Thinking about it, anonymous versus confidential. So when you're thinking about a whistleblower who has reported fully anonymously, right? They went through a hotline and they took great pains to protect their identity. It may just be a fact that companies may not be able to engage with a whistleblower who reported fully anonymously. If they're anonymous, let them stay that way. Even if a company somehow finds out who that anonymous source is, I think it can be incredibly off-putting to somebody who thinks they reported anonymously to have someone kind of show up at their office door and, and start asking them questions about what they reported. So I, I would you know recommend against that. Now, it can be a challenge if someone reported anonymously and that individual did not give enough information for the company to act on. There, I would say just document it 
and have that information accessible so that if that individual calls back or if another employee reports something similar, you can link those issues and potentially create a more fulsome record to determine if an investigation is warranted. Taking any steps to unmask the whistleblower is only going to backfire on the company. If whistleblowers don't trust that reporting mechanism, they simply won't report internally. If word gets around a company that anonymous whistleblowing is not truly anonymous, no one's going to use that internal reporting mechanism. Trust and mutual respect is key. So then let's turn a little bit to if a company gets a tip from an employee that's not anonymous, right? You still want to keep them confidential. You certainly wouldn't want to talk about their name around the company to anyone outside the investigative bubble. But so if you're talking about a a confidential source, it's actually a really good chance for the company to work with the whistleblower to get a better understanding of the issue. And I think following up with the whistleblower whenever possible makes sense. Because in my role as chief in the office of the whistleblower at the time, many whistleblowers told me that they felt frustrated when they heard nothing from the company. And so timely and appropriate touch points with the whistleblower may make all the difference between them feeling heard and understood versus them reporting out outside of the organization. That's such an important point. And one I try to convey to my clients who are sometimes dealing with a you know, large volume of these confidential reports is to reply. And even if you don't have anything to impart, is that thanking them, dignifying that they have gone out of their way, putting themselves out there, and that they're taking them seriously, and they're going to look into it, and then at the appropriate time, report back. You know, you've not actually told them anything about you know what your plans are, but you're making them feel valued. And it's commonly overlooked. I agree. I mean, I heard that a lot at the SEC in my role as chief, that people felt disregarded or disrespected or that they were told that they were wrong and they knew they were right. And that's actually what caused them to report out to the regulator. And then the company lost that chance to investigate and document and put themselves in a good place to correct the issue. And so I think that those touch points really do matter. What you like to convey to companies that may be on the receiving end of these things is the emotional roller coaster that this person is on and the amount of courage it took that they had to summon to come forward to express this stuff because this is at the center of their life right now. And it is in some instances, you know, maybe consuming them. And for them not to hear anything back is given all of the emotions and fear that is wrapped up in what they've taken upon themselves is could really backfire. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Well, this has been a great conversation. I knew it would be I just from our prior conversation. It's such an area of interest of mine and of so many people that are in our face and, and really just anyone that has presiding or in a position of authority over a, a company. It's just, this is such important information to get out there. So thank you so much for spending so much time with me on on this topic. Absolutely. It was a great conversation. Thank you for asking me to join. Thank you. So that was Arnold and Porter partner, Jane Norberg. This concludes this episode of Fraud Eat Strategy. I'm Scott Moritz, Senior Managing Director in FBI Consulting's Risk and Investigations Practice. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of Fraud Eat Strategy. So if you have an idea about a fraud or corruption case, topic or guest that you would like to hear about on a future episode, email us at fraudyeatstrategy at fticonsulting.com. Thank you for listening.